Hi, this is Mandy Griffin. And I'm Katie Swalwell. And welcome to Our Dirty Laundry. Stories of white ladies making a mess of things. And how we need to clean up our act. everybody welcome back to our dirty laundry or welcome i guess this might be your first time and if it is yay hello thank you for coming hello. to yes. learn about white women history and shittiness but today we have kate shots back so we're going to learn about some of the non-shitty white women we're <laughs> so, so it's excited like a, a bit of a palate <laughs> cleanser Yes, this season we've been learning about white feminists and feminism and the ways that whiteness has worked through that. And so we have looked at um, the National Organization of Women um, and so much dirty laundry there. We have looked at the Equal Rights Amendment. That's what Mandy's been teaching us about most recently. What am I missing? I feel like there's tons of connections always to the suffrage movement, which we did in our very first season way back when. So we've just been continuing a look, I guess, at um, really like 1920s forward feminism, but how white feminists have operated so often. And it has not been great. And if you're here listening to this, you want to learn more about that and how we cannot do that anymore. Mandy and I are childhood friends. We identify as white women ourselves. Um, but I think one of the things we've really been learning about is even as we foreground race and gender, that there are just so many other dimensions of who we are that matter in these spaces, like our sexual identity, our social class, our, um, our size, our region that we live in, our citizenship status, like all of these things matter so much. So just trying to hold all of that together um, and how white women, especially who have lots of other dominant identities, have a really shitty track record of being in solidarity with people. So I'm excited to learn from Kate Shots always about anything, but especially about um, maybe examples for us to follow instead of examples for us to avoid. Those avoiding examples are super important, but I think it's good to learn about women who maybe weren't so shitty. Yeah. Yay. So hi, Kate. Welcome back. <laughs> um, I love how you frame that, Katie. Um, you know, examples of women to... Well, what, what what did you just say? Look at that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe weren't so shitty. <laughs> examples to avoid and then examples to follow. And yeah. I think that that's such an important balance. And that's, I'm a, I like that my role here is coming on to talk mm. about people who weren't terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were just interviewing um, another author, Jesse Daniels, a couple of weeks ago, and she wrote a book called Nice White Ladies. Yeah. Um, and we were talking to her about that. And one of the things that came up is that she talks about um, kind of her identity and being mm -hmm. a queer white woman. Mm -hmm. And we talked about how that maybe led her out of her conservative upbringing into mm -hmm. rejecting some of like the heteronormative patriarchal ideas that we are brought up in a lot of times as white people. Um, and then Katie made the comment that, you know, it seems like a lot of the great white women that we have talked about that aren't shitty happen to be queer. 
And is, yeah. is that a thing? Is that like, is and there the, something more to that? And, and Mandy's follow-up question was, is there any hope for cis straight white women? Who are like, <laughs> I, no, mean, I don't know. I know it, it's tough. It's tough for you guys. Um, but you know. <laughs> Oh, the world's oh, and, uh, you know, violin uh, is playing. <laughs> This is very small, but you know, as the saying goes, we recruit um, us lesbians who recruit. So. <laughs> Maybe this is another re- uh, recruitment tool. Um, we're less racist. Yeah, right. um, there's definitely a lot of racist white lesbians out there. Let me be really clear about that from the outset. Um, but I, but I do think that that the, there's a lot of truth to that, um, and that a lot of the you know, a lot of the kind of anti-racist white women that I often look to um, are also also queer, also lesbians. And I think that mm-hmm. there's a real intersection in, um, in the kind of radicalization that a lot of these women went through, um, especially kind of earlier 20th, you know, mid to late mm-hmm. 20th century um, women whose real political awakening was like, it was everything at once, right? It was the women's movement. It was civil rights. And for women who did, um, you know, come out or realize that they are gay, that that was a big part of it too. So that there's like, they actually were rejecting kind of everything around them and taking such huge risks in coming out um, mm. that, that I think you find a lot of, to me, some of the most powerful um, solidarity, like truly intersectional solidarity, um, is with 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 queer women, um, and also a lot of class identity as well. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, the, the women I was going to talk about today, and I think you know another thing for me is so much because I'm a writer, and and like so much of my feminist learning and my kind of political learning is through is through reading um, and is, is reading, you know, poetry and fiction. And so I'm always kind of looking to the writers. Um, so most of my examples are, are them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was going to talk about some, some writers. Who's, awesome. Who's, awesome. Yeah. Um, really quick before I forget something you just said really made me remember something I loved that Jesse pointed out that I hadn't really thought about before. I'm embarrassed to say that, but she was talking about having come out in the eighties and that it was before IVF really had gotten started. Mm-hmm. And it was before campaigns for marriage equality. And so to come out was really to reject like a nuclear family and you really had to form bonds of kinship, like chosen family and that it was a really different choice you were making. Not to say that folks don't make that choice now still, um, yeah. but that there's, you know, the, the opportunities to stay wedded, no pun intended to like a marriage model or like a, you know, parents and children living in a house together kind of model. Like now that those options are legally available and technologically available, that it's almost like de-radicalized some spaces that, that weren't that, that maybe like opened up kinship and solidarity in ways that are harder to find right now. I don't know. What are your thoughts about that? Oh, I think it's really true. And I think that like when we talk about like uh, smashing the patriarchy, you know, and, and, and also when we talk about like really resisting white supremacy and like what actually, like, what are we willing as white women, like, what are you actually willing to give up? Right. Mm-hmm. So like when, when, when we, when we really look at what it means to fully resist white supremacy, like within our own lives, like what are we willing to actually give up? Like what, what privileges, what aspects of what our whiteness affords us are we willing to sacrifice and to, to let go of and to give up? 
I mean, I think there's a real parallel with the, a lot of these women who did come out in the fifties, sixties, seventies, they lost everything. Um, mm-hmm. they, they, and I think that it, for many of them, it gave them maybe a greater capacity to identify with, with the struggles of women of color. Um, and also to understand what it means to, to give everything up. Um, mm-hmm. they lost children, they lost family, they lost jobs, um, for coming out. And I think that it maybe put them in a position to, 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 again, to truly understand what it means to take risks and to, you know, put everything on the line um, and, and to, and to be truly marginalized. Because I think that when you're still operating from the place of the places of comfort um, and kind of mainstream acceptance, you, mm. you, know, you, you haven't truly been in it, but they were, they were, they were fully marginalized. They, they mm. still were living as white women and they were, you know, afforded, um, all the privileges of that, but but as lesbians, they were absolutely marginalized and, and rejected. So I think that it did create um, some opportunities for some really powerful solidarity. Mm. So who are these ladies? Let's learn about them. Let's see. Okay, so the people I was going to talk about, there's three, um, Adrian Rich and mm. Mab Segrist and Minnie Bruce Pratt. Why did I get kind of fascinated with them because I kind of, am just a huge fan of all of them, I guess. But I think they also like, of course their work all completely intersects and crosses over. Um, but I also think that they're interesting examples. I don't know. They represent different aspects of, of, of all this. So again, I'm looking at, I've, I'm always really fascinated by, um, you know, kind of like late sixties, seventies feminism and, um, and literature. Mab Segrist is someone who I learned about from, do you guys know the band La Tigra? Yes. Mm-hmm. I do. You know the song Hot Topic? Okay. Well, there's this really great La Tigra song and La Tigra is a radical feminist, queer dance, pop punk band from the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, the lead singer is Kathleen Hanna, who was in Bikini Kill. And then she went on to do La Tigra and they have this song called Hot Topic. It's like, the best dance song, but it's also just like a women's studies syllabus where they just <laughs> shout out the names of like radical uh, women um, and artists and activists from history. Um, and it's super danceable and fun, but then they're just literally just yelling all these like names of feminists. Um, <laughs> and uh, one of the, one of the names that they yell out is Mab Segrist. And I never heard of her. And I remember being like, mm-hmm. like I've heard of a lot of the other names and then I was like, who's that? So then I went and looked her up um, and became pretty fascinated with, with her work. She wrote a book called Memoir of a Race Trader. So I feel like a lot of what I'm going to do today is just like recommend books and essays that people should read. Right. This is great. <laughs> By the way, I, I, all I have in my head when you say Hot Topic is the really ridiculous store in every mall. Yeah. yeah. I need to let that go yeah. and let this yeah. like, <laughs> They were definitely like referencing that and like riffing off of it um, in their song. Because everything that oh, great. Was- they did everything they did was super tongue in cheek. So that was not um, an accident. They were intentionally uh, referencing the, the goth, the goth mall store. (laughs) But um, anyway, but so Mab Segrist did write a book called memoir of a race trader. Um, And so both Mab Segrist and Minnie Bruce Pratt are really similar in a lot of ways. They were both born in the late forties in the South. And so they are both, there are white women who were born into the segregated South. Mab Segrist was born in I think she was born in Tuskegee and Minnie Bruce Pratt was born mm-hmm. in Selma. I could have this, I could have it wrong. And they were born in they were again, both in the late forties and they have a pretty similar story of growing up in, you know, the segregated South um, in incredibly racist families. Both of them, their grandfathers were members of the KKK. 
um, and they grew up in it. They were relatively, I think both of them had a relatively middle working to middle class upbringings. Um, but again, um, you know, grew up just steeped in white supremacy mm-hmm. um, and segregation. Um, and then both of them really were kind of radicalized in the 60s um, during the civil rights movement and then um, kind of as part of the women's movement. Um, and then both of them did come out and identify as lesbian and were really active in lesbian, feminist and anti-racist um, work. Minnie Bruce Pratt is a poet um, and so she's published a number of books of poetry um, and also essays. Um, and then Mab Segret's work has been, so she wrote memoir of a race trader. Um, but she was more of like a lifelong activist. Um, and she's kind of one of the things she's really known for, um, is working in North Carolina, really kind of being one of the key players in like getting the KKK, like out of South or North Carolina, kind of like reading the mm-hmm. state of KKK officially, mm-hmm. um, in the seventies and eighties is when she was doing that work. Um, and I think that they're just both people who, you know, kind of came of age during that civil rights movement um, and in the South um, and became these really influential figures as lesbians, as feminists, um, and as people who were really looking closely at their heritage and their upbringing um, and, and undoing the kind of racial training that was, you know, what they, what they came up in and really like critiquing it. Um, and again, because they were both women who had all fully reject, you know, like rejected every aspect of that, but they're, you know, the patriarchal upbringing, um, as well as the, you know, as, as the, as the white supremacist upbringing. One thing about Minnie Bruce Pratt, um, is she did live, have a pretty conventional life up through college and she married a man. Um, and then they had kids really young. Um, and she actually lost her custody of her kids as so many other lesbians at the time did. Um, and she, she, they had two kids. And so when she divorced her husband, they were really young and she fully lost, she wasn't allowed to see them. Um, and there were all of these um, custody laws where she wasn't allowed to live with anybody else. Um, so like if she lived even with a roommate, she wouldn't be able to see the kids. She had to live totally alone to have any kind of visits with them. Um, and her ex-husband moved the kids out of the state. So she had to like cross state lines. And for several years, she just wasn't able to see her kids. Um, she has an incredibly heartbreaking poem um, called All the Women Caught in Flaring Light that is mm. about not just her, it's really not just about her own experience, but it's about all of these women who lost their children um, because, because they came out. Um, and it's so heartbreaking. I don't know. I feel like when I was, I was a women's studies major in college. Um, and I just feel like there were all of these like lesbian writers and activists and kind of heroes that I had um, who I just like looked up to and I was fascinated with their work and their lives. And then over time, I realized how many of them had been married to men um, before coming out kind of later in life. Um, and, and mm-hmm. Nibris Pratt is definitely one of them as was um, Adrian Rich also. And Matt, Matt Seekers actually wasn't, she um, and her partner, Barbara, they actually got pregnant with, they used like a friend's as a donor and they had a daughter in the seventies and, so the other thing that brought Mab Segrist and Minnie Bruce Pratt together is that they founded this journal called Feminary. Hmm. 
it was in Durham. So they were in North Carolina. And so they founded it. So it was from between 1978 to 1982. It was a lesbian feminist journal. And it's really so much of kind of women, you know, this kind of feminist history and, and, and lesbian history was in these like tiny journals and publications. And there's like all these really fun rabbit hole histories of like these feminist presses and that published just like tiny print runs and these little pamphlets and books that maybe like hundreds of people <laughs> bought or read, but that were so kind of um, I don't know, fascinating and important. And so Feminary was a really interesting kind of publishing venture of these kind of radical lesbian feminists. Um, and they published, and then Adrian Rich published stuff in there as well. And so that was like where they, the two of them kind of came together um, and were really publishing um, some pretty radical work coming out of the South um, again in the late seventies, early eighties. And then um, the other, I, another, while well, I'm like, I, I was actually going back to, and it's, you know, it's funny for me um, in going back and reading, kind of revisiting a lot of their work because I'm realizing how much of their work I read early on when I was mm-hmm. like an early women's studies major that, um, that I read so much of this back then. Um, and now I'm going back. I'm like, Oh yeah, I totally remember reading mm-hmm. that. I like feminist theory class. Um, but there's mm-hmm. a really important collection of essays published in 1984 called yours in struggle. And it was three feminist perspectives on anti-Semitism and racism. Um, and in 1984, so Minnie Bruce Pratt wrote this essay called Identity, Skin, Blood, Heart. Um, and so it was Minnie Bruce Pratt writing from the point of view of a Southern Christian raised, a white lesbian. Um, and then Barbara Smith has an essay in it. And Barbara Smith was one of the, um, one of the members of the Kambahi River Collective, mm-hmm. um, black lesbian feminist, mm-hmm. um, and just incredible writer and just really important figure um, in in the movement. Um, and then this woman named Ellie Birkin, who was a Jewish lesbian feminist, um, who was part of a group called Dare Dykes Against Racism Everywhere. I guess my point of talking about these women is that there's just so many examples of like what I see as really truly intersectional work mm. that was being done. And, you know, mm. I've said this before when I've come on and talked with you guys, it's like the stuff means so much to me because it's, you know, it's humbling and it's, and it gives so much perspective. And mm. I think we talked at one point about like, it can also be depressing because you're like, Oh, cool. They were talking about it then. And we're still talking about it now. But I, I still mm-hmm. feel like it also just reminds us that we did not, none of this is new. We did not just come up with this stuff, this idea about our feminism being intersectional. Um, you know, again, it is not new. And the, but there have truly been people who who've been doing that work um, and having these conversations um, for a long time. And I do think that because these women that I'm talking about were lesbian identified, they were, you know, extra marginalized. Um, And that's, you know, part of why we don't know more of their work. (laughs) Mm. um, Mm. They were also, yeah, they were publishing amongst each other. Um, Well, that, I guess that was a question I had like this, um, yours in the struggle, yours in struggle mm -hmm. anthology or book that, and and even the journal that you mentioned, the feminary journal, like who would find out about it? Who would read it? Was it circulating in lesbian circles? Was mm-hmm. it more widely read? Like, I'm just curious about how they got that into the hands of readers and who the readers were. Yeah. Feminists 
uh, people in the women's movement, um, you know, people who were, you know, these small circles of people who were, who were reading this work, who were activists, um, you know, and that, and, and the, the point of yours in struggle was for these three women from these different backgrounds to write about racism and anti-racist work and anti-Semitism, like, but from their differing perspectives. So Barbara Smith mm-hmm. writing as a black woman um, about the challenges of talking to other black women about anti-Semitism um, and also, but being really honest about her perspective on it as a black woman. And I will say, mm-hmm. I have not, I went back and reread some of Minnie Bruce Pratt's essay, but I haven't reread Barbara Smith's for a long time. So I'm like, I don't know how it all holds up. I don't know how it would, mm-hmm. how it would read now. Um, yeah. So yeah, really like who, who read it? Like people in like women's studies, you know, programs, like, you know, these really small niche, um, you know, realms at like lesbian bookstore, feminist bookstores in the eighties. Mm-hmm. I don't know. but I wonder like if these women are running in totally different circles from the women mm-hmm. that we've been learning about, like, um, yeah that started the national, like national women's for party women and that were in all of people. these. Yeah. The national women's party, were they just, were they, did they have thoughts about that? Were they writing about white feminism and what they were leaving out at the time? Um, or were they just totally separated and not? Yeah. So one thing I think is really interesting is that the, the, the feminary journal and then and Minnie Bruce Pratt in particular has really talked about like she in a lot of her work in the late seventies and eighties and early eighties is that she was basically taking her marching orders from the Kambahi river statement. Um, mm-hmm. They were like, okay, got you. I hear you. Here's what we're going to do. And so a lot of her, of her writing around that time was really direct in direct response to that. So they were, they were, I mean, in terms of similar circles, and actually I started listening to your episode about the ERA now, but I haven't listened to the whole thing. So I don't know how much you talked about the kind of like lavender menace mm-hmm. and the like split. Oh yeah. Right. So yeah. yeah mm-hmm. Similar circles. Yes. But a lot of these women who were, and I think Minnie Bruce Pratt was a member of, of a now chapter. Um, and I don't actually know the full, I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know what happened after, after the kind of lavender menace drama in 1969. Mm-hmm. Um, but like a lot of the other kind of prominent lesbian writers, like Rita Mae Brown, who wrote Ruby Fruit Jungle. Um, she's like a real kind of iconic lesbian um, writer. And she was one of the, one of the people who really, she, she quit. She was like um, a really high ranking member of now. And after Betty Friedan made her Lavender Menace comment, she mm-hmm. like very publicly quit and left the organization. Um, and then mm-hmm. that whole group of lesbians who had been in now started their own, you know, the Lavender Menace and they, and they, you know, had this split because of all that bullshit. Well, it definitely makes sense yeah. if you're going to be committed to anti-racism to be taking your marching orders from the Kambahi River Collective and not Betty Friedan. <laughs> like that right. makes sense. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's great. So that that was Mitty Bruce Pratt and Mab Seacrest were like knew each other, were friends, or were collaborators working on things together. Yeah. in the South. Yeah, um, and then Mitty Bruce Pratt's partner too. I mean, there's another. Again, there's like everybody's connected, and there's so many people we could, I could talk about, um, she was married to Leslie Feinberg. Um, and Leslie Feinberg's, she wrote, she's passed away, um, I think like seven years ago. Um, and Leslie Feinberg also, uh, she was a working class Jewish butch and, um, really wrote a lot about butch identity and class, um, and, mm-hmm. and whiteness. Um, and she wrote stone butch blues, which was a really kind of mm-hmm. another kind of iconic, 
queer text. Um, and she really like was an outspoken, um, very visible, um, butch woman, um, who, who consistently used, um, female pronouns. I think that she may have started shifting pronouns before her death, but she and Minnie Bruce Pratt were married for many years and they were really kind of a major lesbian, <laughs> lesbian power couple. Power couple. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's that's mm-hmm. them. And then I think other person I wanted to um and I just think that like again, there's so they've they both did so much interesting writing. There's really beautiful oral histories with them um where they really talk about about their work in the South and and really, you know, talking about anti-racist work and they're still alive. Um um and then they've also been Both of them are still alive, I was mm-hmm. going to ask. Yeah. 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 Okay. That's so interesting. What are they up to? I mean, Um, they're not so old to be born in the late 1940s. Yeah. We were talking, I don't think you've gotten to this yet if you haven't finished listening to the episode, but we were talking about how Mandy mentioned Eleanor Roosevelt was involved in some commission in the 60s. And I was like, what? You're blowing my mind. I'm picturing Eleanor Roosevelt in like a jumpsuit, you know, or like just... How yeah. is she living in the sixties or Alice Paul oh, living I well that. into that? You're just like, what, what is that? So I, it is kind of amazing. Like I, I'm sure it's frustrating to be those figures and have, and still be alive. I'm like, I'm still here. I still have ideas and I'm still doing things that people fix you in like the sixties or seventies. Yeah. And that's just where they so have true. you in their minds. Yeah. So they were both, they were both professors of women's studies. Um, yeah, so Matt Seagrass, I think she's like 73 hmm. and Minnie Bruce Proud is maybe like 75 and they live, um, I think they're both retired from teaching. Um, Minnie hmm. Bruce Proud has a great website. Actually, I had like, I had pulled it up. You go to her website and it's like poet, activist, LGBTQ plus, anti-racist, anti-imperialist. Like that's her like, and then it says, it's <laughs> like. <laughs> um, yeah she's just i mean again I, I love her poetry and i i just think that she's someone who's just been fucking doing this she's just been like in the struggle yeah. and again for her and for for map Seagrass, like i my sense from reading their work is that they came like again their political and awakening and their personal awakening was really all out kind of at once right like it, it mm. like it wasn't i mean it's you know, it was all very like, inter- like their work is intersectional because their, their, their politics and their awakening was intersected. It was like all of it kind of together at once. Maybe this is a weird question, but Mandy and I are always yeah. interested in people's families, mm-hmm. like the drama in the families too. And I can imagine for them in the forties <laughs> in the South, given the fact that their grandfathers were in the clan and, you know, for them to come out politically, to come out with their politics that they had to come out as queer, like, do they have any connection with their family, their birth families? Like, I don't know, maybe it depends on who the cousins or siblings are, whoever, but I would imagine that that was like a very significant break for them to know about their families of origin. I mean, yes. And actually, I mean, Mab's in like memoir of a race trader is like Mab Seagrass writes about it in detail. And actually I found this great oral history of um, Minnie Bruce Pratt. I mean, their parents, you know, their parents are all past and um, Mm. you know, but, but, but yeah, I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure of like, I don't remember all the details of, of how, how close they stayed with them, but there was, you know, they definitely had to really reject it all. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I'm just mm-hmm. going to have to read Memoir of a Waste Trader, which you reminded me I bought months and months ago and is now on like the a stack of books that 
I am really good at buying books. Then I just need to read them and keep reading them. That's the trick. (laughs) There's a picture um, that I love so much of Minnie Bruce Pratt. Um, It's on her website. She's holding, it's from 1982 and she's holding a sign. She's at a anti-KKK protest and she looks super fierce Mm -hmm. and stern. And her sign just says, a Southerner, a lesbian against the KKK. It just gives me goosebumps <laughs> at all things that point. are happening right now. Like thinking about the families in Texas who are like, I, we are Texan, we're not leaving. And yet they're being investigated by child protective services for child abuse. Like that, that idea of like, you don't get to define what the South is, you bigoted, racist, transphobic fuckwad. Like I'm going to define what the South is. Like it just is it, the echoes of it, like you said, it can be depressing if we look at it from one way, but just thinking about the, the connections and the generations of people that we Mm -hmm. stand on. So interesting. And I'm wondering there, all of these like women's studies programs that are closing all over or the attacks on women's studies, it's just got to be, a lot for them to look at their careers having been part of the founding of those programs and fighting for them and then seeing it just like continually under attack has to just be so hard. Yeah. And I think you you did nail it. And that's that's one thing I really appreciate about Maps Egress and Minnie Bruce Pratt and like Lillian Smith, who I talked to you sure. before, is that they they did represent, they mm-hmm. really were claiming their identity as Southerners. They were really claiming like, no, this is my heritage too. Like this is who this is what I come from and I'm reckoning with it. Mm-hmm. And here's what I'm gonna name and like resist, but also like mm-hmm. that's who I am. Like I'm from here. Like this is, you know, this is my place too. Um I actually mm-hmm. just before I talked with you guys today, I right before I was with actually a really one of my closest friends who lives in Texas. She's in town and she has a trans daughter and oh God. nine years old and, and she's black and her husband's white and she's Muslim and he's Jewish. And so they're raising a mixed race, mixed faith trans wow. daughter in Texas. And she was actually, we were just talking about how she's like, yeah, I'm actually really creating a backup plan if we do need to move. Like, like definitely yeah. want to stay and fight, but also really hard to do that when it's like about your child's yeah. safety. <laughs> yeah. Like literal life yeah. and death questions. Yeah. Oh God. Oh, so um, the other person I was going to talk to in, in this today's trio um, is, <laughs> is Adrian Rich, um, who's truly one of my favorite writers and poets of all time and whose work overlaps and intersects a lot with um with Mab and Minnie Bruce, but also is, is she's is different in part because she was older. To me, she's interesting in that her awakening comes like a little bit later in her life. Um, hmm. So Adrian Rich is a poet and a writer. She's not alive. She died I don't know, like 2012 maybe. Um, but she was born in the twenties and she's, and she was more of a, um, She's from the North, right? So that's, I think, part of the difference, too. So those, mm-hmm. the other two women are people who were, like, really born right into it. Um, and whereas Adrian Rich had much more of, like, an outsider perspective um, and didn't really start to critique, you know, or, or identify with anti-racist work until, she, until much later in her life um, and also came out um, publicly much later um, and was really an accomplished poet um, by the time that she did. Um, she's also someone who, I mean, by the, you know, she was really kind of seen as this kind of like 
it was like even in the fifties, she was like winning awards for her poetry. Um, and it and it's if you look at her work over the years, it just gets more and more radical as she does, and it's like really cool mm-hmm. to trace her evolution as like a political person um, and as a lesbian in in her poetry. Like her first books of poetry that were like super polite, um, <laughs> really radical. Um, and she also was married to a man and had three kids with him. She did not lose custody of them, I think, in part because um, her when she did get divorced and came out, her uh, ex-husband actually uh, killed himself. He drove into the woods oh, himself. Um, and so she had her three kids. Um, and so she mm. is someone who I have often looked to. And I think just what else is interesting about Adrienne Rich um, is that she wrote very explicitly about her own process of coming to identify as an anti-racist. Um, I think in part of uh, her life partner for a long time was um, another writer, a woman named Michelle Cliff, who was a black woman um, born in Jamaica. Um, and they were partners for many, many years. And I think a lot of her, again, and she's someone who also, I mean, it was like the women's movement. She, again, wasn't identifying as lesbian yet, was involved in the women's movement, consciousness raising, has her realization, um, but but um, was a really established, like super famous poet at that time. So uh, I think she's mm-hmm. another person who took some really enormous risks um, um, by coming out and then by writing very explicitly about race um, in her work because she... Um, you know, she took risks, but she could, she could risk it because she was so established. Um, and there's a really famous uh, story. And I know I'm like, what year did this happen? Um, but she was nominated for the national book award. Um, I think it was maybe 1977, mm, 78. Um, and she was nominated for poetry for the national book award. Um, Alice Walker and Audre Lorde were also nominated in the same category. Um, oh my God. And so this, this, as the story goes, Adrienne Rich was like, decided that she wasn't, she basically figured she would win because she was white and she was very explicit about this. Mm. And she um, decided that she wasn't going to accept it um, if she won um, and that she wanted um, Alice Walker and Audrey Lord to basically like join her in a pact that if any of them won, that they would reject it um, and not keep the prize money. Um, and that they would accept it together, like on behalf of all women um, who have like suffered under the patriarchy. Uh, and like, it's an interesting story. Cause like apparently mm-hmm. Alice Walker, like was not super psyched about the plan. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, Audrey, both Audrey Lord and Alice Walker were like, yes, actually, but I would like to keep this money. if I. Why not? Why can't they wait? Right. For sure. Right, but what's, it was presumptive of Andrea mm-hmm. Rich, but it was also her really naming like, look, I'm probably going to win because I am white and I'm like, super famous and that's how mm. fucked up this whole system is. Um, mm. So she had this, they mm. had this whole plan. And then in the end, they decided to like, like they like split the prize and like they actually split it between Adrian Rich and Allen Ginsberg and like gave them each half. Wait a second. Yeah. So two, wait, what? Yeah. So that backfired. Threw in Ginsberg. And then they had this big award ceremony um, and Ginsberg didn't sh- even show up and his boyfriend like went up to accept for him. But then um, when it was, when they awarded it to Adrian Rich, she went up um, with Audrey Lord. Alice Walker did not show up, um, but she and Audrey Lord went up and they gave this like powerful statement about um, hmm. like, fuck the patriarchy. Like we're not taking your award. Um, we're not taking your money. Um, it was like a iconic uh, 
you know, moment in, in, in her career. Um, wow. That I, I hmm. want to read like everything I can about that. It makes me think this is so random, but there was, I think I'm sure it was like a Grammy award that Adele was nominated for, but it was the year that Beyonce's oh, Lemonade wow. album. And I, I was like, mm-hmm. no, Adele, no, everybody knows Beyonce. Le- like that is an epic masterwork. Like you know, <laughs> like, I don't know what I expected Adele to do, <laughs> but I, I was just like, that can't, white women can't keep winning things when they know their work wasn't as good. Like, I don't know what you do in that moment. So maybe you, you have to pull yourself out of the running or you have to have some kind of conversation. But anyway, that's what it, do you all remember that? Am I like, Mm -hmm. not that Adele's work isn't Mm -hmm. beautiful, but like, come on. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, it was, it was, yeah, she, she won over lemonade. Yes. Like what? No. Sorry, I'm still clearly bitter about it, but um, and just to think, like in one year, that those were the po- that was the lineup for like Audre Lord, Alice Walker. Like, are you kidding me? Right? There's not an award big enough for them, honestly. Like, no, right. keep your stupid awards. Yeah, absolutely interesting. And so yeah. I've always so I do think of Adrienne Rich as someone who she was she was she did. I think she's an example of a, of a, of a, of a white woman who she was extremely conscious of her platform and her privilege um, because she was very successful Mm -hmm. in the world of poetry. She was very accepted um, by the kind of like male, um, the Academy, Mm -hmm. you know, she won a lot of fancy awards. She was um, very well regarded um, and she, it wasn't lost on her. And I think that there's a lot of instances of her really, really leveraging that privilege um, on behalf of, of, of poets of color. Um, and actually she was pretty instrumental in helping um, in getting Audre Lorde's first book published as well. Um, hmm. Hmm. I will say that um, I, my agent, my literary agent was Audre Lorde's first agent. Um, my literary, my agent's been around forever. And so oh, wow. <laughs> she has the most amazing stories. So I've gotten her on the phone a few times and just been like, tell me about, tell me about Audre Lorde and Adrian Rich. Like, <laughs> Tell me a bedtime story that's about uh, this amazing feminist solidarity in the late seventies. Um, and so mm-hmm. I, I these stories have come from, from her retelling them. Well, I love this idea of, of studying these women in particular. Cause I remember, I think I first learned about like the idea of positive deviance. I don't know if you guys have heard about that. And when I was doing my public health studies and specifically like looking at communities that, you know, had whatever problem you were trying to study where you could find the person or the individual or the group that was making things work in otherwise super mm-hmm. terrible circumstances. And then looking at them and saying, what is it about them that brought them mm-hmm. out of this or that made them not subject maybe to Mm. all of the things that they were brought up in and like, how did they survive these circumstances or come from that as a way of thinking about social and behavioral change, which I think is really interesting to look at these women, especially the ones who like came from the South and from families that were probably very patriarchal and racist and conservative and how studying their lives, I think is just really instructive to the rest of us to say, where did they come from? Like they had every excuse to maybe stay in that. Like there's no reason they shouldn't have just grown up as like the Mm -hmm. white privileged Mm -hmm. Southern bells. And so why didn't they? And then 
taking instruction from that. that I, think is I really, really like that, so. that word instructive. Like that is the way that I think about, about them. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, and I've talked to you before that I'm like, I'm always very careful. This isn't about being like, but no, there were good white women too. We're not all terrible. Right. Yes. <laughs> it's, not. it's about like their work is really powerful and it's instructive. Like, you know, and it, and it, like if they could do it, mm-hmm. if they did that, I'm like, okay, you know, what can, what can we do now? And I think not saying like they were perfect saints and how dare we ever, you know, learn anything about them that isn't that narrative. Like everybody's complicated. So it's not to say like even in this book word example that you gave, like, okay, maybe there are lessons learned from that about like I can see why Alice Walker and Audre Lorde would say like, well, you know, we'll maybe win an award. That's fine. (laughs) So but I think the idea of like (laughs) wanting to be aware of these circumstances and using your platform and thinking about how to do that and thinking about how to do that in solidarity with folks like that's a really important thing to do. What are the big lessons that you take away from Rich? Like you said, you're really inspired by her. When you look at your life, your career, you know, maybe it's a combination of things. What can you point to that you think she has influenced you in? Mm, I mean, she, she really, I mean, she just, she deeply influenced me when I was young. Like when I was Mm -hmm. first, you know, like I think that her work is some of the first like, um, feminist poetry that I read. Um, and that she, I I think that she also is someone who has written a lot about history. And I thought like, she has a couple of really poems that I loved so much when I was young, where she was really writing about like hidden women and hidden feminists from history that we don't learn about. Um, and was really doing that work and that really influenced me. And I think inspired me from a young age to be thinking about, about identity in, in, and in, in a kind of lin, in, in a lineage, right? Um, actually, I, I instead of paraphrasing, I can actually read a thing from her because <laughs> um, she. So actually, so there's a um, one of the things that I f- went back and reread. Um, so as I, I love her, I love her poetry, but she was a really wonderful essayist. And she has a couple of um, collections of essays. There's one called On Lies, Secrets, and Silence. But there's one, um, there's a collection that she um, called Blood, Bread, and Poetry. And there's a talk that Adrienne Rich gave in 1981 at the, um, at the like women's studies, it's like the National Women's Studies Association. Um, and it's this really, I just love, it's this really beautiful speech. Um, uh, she also cites, I love it because she cites many Bruce, she quotes many Bruce Pratt um, and she references what she learned in reading Feminary, right? So again, like who read mm-hmm. it? Like, I don't know, Adrian Ruth mm-hmm. reading it. And then she's like, <laughs> I did it in this conference. Um, and it's at the whole, the whole, I really love the whole speech. Um, you know, I mean, so she says things like to understand where as white women, we have been situated in the overall system of oppression, which also oppresses us is crucial knowledge if we are serious about our lives. Um, mm-hmm. Only as mm-hmm. white women begin to understand both our obedience and complicity and our rebellions, do we begin to have the tools for an ongoing response to racism, which is neither circular, rhetorical, nor resentful. White women's anti-racism and lesbianism have both been profound refusals to obey. Mm. Um, and that, I mean, I think that kind of goes back to what we started with, this idea that, you know, both of these were, yeah, it's this refusal to obey, like a real rejection 
of of the systems of patriarchy and white supremacy. Um, and that's there's the, the power in that. So she basically talks about her kind of you really need to read the whole thing because I could just actually be reading all of this. We'll link to it. She yeah, talks please. about she says finally I want to say something about my personal understanding of racism. For a long time, particularly in the 1960s, I needed to believe that, though white, I was not a carrier of racism. Um, mm-hmm. And she cites all this stuff. And she's basically like, okay, I taught Letter from a Birmingham Jail. I taught James Baldwin. I read Malcolm X. Like, I'm fine. I'm good. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and, and she really kind of comes around to um, this, uh, you know, white anti-racist activists, activists in the 60s who are you know, not acknowledging what they carry within them. Um, she says, I speak of that period because it has been part of the history I have needed to face rigorously, in particular as a feminist committed to the struggle for all women for liberation. I think we need to get rid of the useless baggage that says that by opposing racist violence, by doing anti-racist work, or by becoming feminist, white women somehow cease to carry racism within them. Mm-hmm. And then she quotes mm-hmm. this writer named Chris mm-hmm. South, who was... Um, I think Minnie Bruce's Pratt's, Minnie Bruce Pratt's partner for a while. Um, and she says, she quotes a line that she wrote that says, the roots may be in the patriarchy, but they've grown into us. Mm. Um, and she says, what was mm-hmm. true for me was that in growing into feminism and coming out as a lesbian, I found a sense of personal and collective history and identity. Um, and so that line, mm. that's, I think, what she's always represented for me. And all of these women mm. represent for me is like, finding that personal and collective um, like lineage and like historical identity um, that is, you know, outside of blood relation, but is like, again, offers instructions for, for how to do this um, and, and kind of models these different ways of living that, um, that are possible. That's so beautiful. That's awesome. I can't I'm wait to read it. Up. We will link to that for sure. Cause I, I want to read something it. Yeah. And I've been yeah. thinking a lot about as we've been learning about white feminism, I think more than even the other topics that we've studied so far with this podcast has been reflecting on ourselves, especially because we knew each other when we were 12 mm-hmm. and, and that what bonded us initially was like <laughs> our little like proto feminist protests in junior high mm-hmm. that our relationship to feminism has changed so much as we've, grown and as our consciousness has expanded to include a critique and an understanding of other systems of oppression. And maybe I think you were saying something the other day about how when you were younger, you used to not understand, like, how could a woman ever not identify as a feminist? Like, I don't get it. Um, And so just this, like, Mm -hmm. deepening awareness. But at the same time, there's, like, historical forces going on that we're situated into. So thinking about what was happening in the 90s when we were 12 versus 12 year olds now that there's both like an interpersonal growth that happens, but there's also this like social stew that you're simmering in, Mm -hmm. you know, that impacts how you think about things. So I'm just, Mm -hmm. it's a personal question, but I'm curious for you um, how you would say that your relationship to feminism has changed as as we're learning about like the decades of feminist history and the, it's sort of evolution. How, what, how has your relationship to it changed? Mm, I love that question. I love that whole setup. You know, I just <laughs> was talking about this a couple of days ago. Um, I actually have the extraordinarily, the extraordinary honor and privilege 
of speaking to my daughter's entire seventh grade class about feminism. Um, I feel like the, like there's like a window that's just closing of time that my daughter will think it's cool for me to come talk to her school. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's tomorrow. (laughs) I'm like, I'll get in there. Um, So I actually just gave a whole talk about like, her teacher was like, can you do like a feminism 101? It's like, Mm. I could try. Uh, So I Mm. was, and she actually goes to a, um, well, it is an traditionally all girls school. There are now a lot Mm. of students that are identifying as non-binary and that are trans. Um, So actually part of the fascinating conversation was like how these young 12 year olds are grappling with like, why does the school have to have girls in the name? Not all of us are girls. And so Mm. but Mm. part of what I Mm. talked to them about as a way to kind of frame an understanding of what is feminism is um, I actually have a tattoo on my arm. I'll show you your listeners can't see it, but it's like, (laughs) it's, it's just a capital F and a lowercase F next to it in a, in a serif, a classic Mm. serif font. Um, And I always like my idea with this (laughs) tattoo is that it's like my F is for feminism. um, And it's like capital F feminism and lowercase feminism. That's kind of like uppercase and lowercase. And then, and the way that I talked to the students about it was I often think of like there is uppercase capital fem- F feminism, which is like the history and it as like a scholarly topic, an academic pursuit, an ideology, like a movement. Right. And that where we study what well, everything we're talking about right now and we look at the mm-hmm. history and all of these things. And then there's like lowercase feminism, which is that interpersonal relationship we have with our gender identity and what it actually means to us and how we as individually define and experience feminism. And I think that those are, they're totally connected and they're both of equal importance. Um, And I, you know, I think you kind of need to understand one to understand the other. Um, Mm -hmm. All of that to say is how has my relationship Mm -hmm. with it evolved? I mean, I think that it's, it's just continued to be a really constant, powerful part of my life. Um, and it's just like the lens through which I view the world. Um, and I, and I think I've talked about this on here before, but I feel always felt grateful. And I think if anything, I feel increasingly grateful as I get older, um, that my initial education in capital F feminism was really profoundly intersectional. Um, I, teachers that I got to learn with, like all of this stuff I'm talking about today is all stuff that I was reading when I was 18. And it's like, was my, my introduction to capital F feminism was through a really, truly radical intersectional lens. Um, and mm-hmm. I really, I just, I'm so grateful for that. Um, and it doesn't mean that I haven't been totally guilty of white feminist bullshit in my life, but like my, <laughs> my, my foundational intro to it um, was, I mean, I was like, got to learn from teachers who were part of the Kambahi collective. Like I got to learn from mm-hmm. teachers who were um, Angela Davis's defense team. Like that was some, like some of the first mm-hmm. stuff that I was reading that was feminist literature was by radical black lesbian feminists from the seventies. So, be, you know, I, I feel like if anything, my relationship to feminism has just, it's deepened and expanded as I've become a mother, as I've um, you know, but it's, it's been pretty consistent. Um, and so the kind of critiques of it um, that, that you talk about and that, that we're talking about have also always been part of my, my experience of it and my mm. standing of it, like kind of from the mm. get go. 
um, which I think has saved me a lot of like, like wasted energy of like, um, you know, like I didn't have to have yeah. like a, Oh my God, we're all like, Oh no. Like I've we, we, wrong. Oh no shit. Like, oh, cause it's like, how <laughs> <laughs> I just, I'm just seeing someone's like class schedule when they're, you know, college freshman, like I'm going to need 15 credit hours of, Oh fuck. I didn't know that. And I'm going to need 18 hours of shit. What? And it's like all the, all, all the unlearning you have to do. I think when you're someone who's been steeped in this, mm-hmm. like best case scenario is you're willing to unlearn it, but how great would it be to not even have to waste the time unlearning things? And just be able to like, it sounds like how you were exposed to these ideas, just like immediately from the jump, learning from people who were fully aware, fully immersed, really thinking, right, living and experiencing intersectionality and writing about it, thinking about it, acting on that. Like, that's, that's beautiful. That's really nice to hear. That was not my experience, but that's really great to hear. Shout out to UC Santa Cruz (laughs) in the 90s. That's what <laughs> not not um Iowa in the late nineties, early two thousands. I'm shocked. I'm shocked. Not Mr. Oh, Daniels man. AP social studies class. What? But there, I think there's power in the unlearning too. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that can be a real catalyst mm-hmm. for people to like double, triple down on their commitments or the risks they're willing to take because of the the like anger that they feel when they're unlearning. It's something I noticed a lot when I was teaching college students um, who were going to be teachers and and teaching them how to teach about social studies. And and it was all about unlearning for most of them. And it it was they were incredibly angry and incredibly frustrated with people who had educated them with their family for lying to them, for hiding things from them. Like, and, and that it, it almost made me think like, you know, these, I think some of their educators and their family members were lying to them, hiding things from them to keep them from being political. But now the joke's on them because if they had just learned those truths up front, I think who knows what would have happened, but now they have this like, very deeply personal relationship. Like I like, fuck that, that is messed up. And like, I'm never going to let that happen to anybody else. And Mm -hmm. surely that is not every student that I worked with. That is not every takeaway that they had, but it, it was such a huge um, energizer to their like new kind of political commitments and identities that they had that they were just so angry that they'd been like, yeah, it's a good motivator, which is why I think there's so much efforts to police that now. Like, to just make those lies last as long as possible because they don't want young people to have those moments. Like they, you know, but I have a lot of faith in young people. I'm sure that 12 year old class, you know, seventh graders was pretty awesome. It it was so great. I I think I gave a lot of them permission to be, to call themselves feminists if they want. (laughs) That's so great. Let's hear it for the 12 year old. Well, thank you so much for coming back and teaching us again. And I'm sure that we will get more into some of these women and we can post some of their work so that our listeners can read more of them too. Cause I'd never heard of any of them. um, Sadly. I mean, it's it's like, again, I I recognize (laughs) that like the, the, that education that I got like really was rarefied and like, Mm. you know, it's like, I feel like my personal canon, like the writers that like I was mm-hmm. taught are these like great literary heroes are like not the ones that everybody else have. Like, I'm like, I've actually, mm-hmm. there's like so many like 
classics that I still have never actually read. Um, but like, you know, I'll talk about Adrian Rich all day, but like, <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot of like white dude writers. And I'm like, oh yeah, I never actually like, I don't really know anything about them. Um, so I, so I'm, I'm always happy to, to talk about them and, and to share their work. And, and of course everybody intersects and, and they're all connected, um, you know, and there's just like a lot of really mm-hmm. great, fascinating work out there. And, and I feel like every time I revisit these, these people, I just learn more and more. I mean, there's just so much, um, you know, and there's like some really great um, conversations between Adrian Rich and Audre Lorde um, that are, that are mm-hmm. like in sister outsider, the Audre Lorde book. There's a conversation mm-hmm. with them um, to go back to the thing we keep talking about. Is it like depressing mm-hmm. to know that it's been being talked about forever? But the thing is like, it's an ongoing conversation and we're part of it, right? Like we are having, yes, we're still having mm-hmm. the same conversations, <laughs> Um but that's because it's it's a it's a never ending ongoing conversation, and so I think for me when I go back and I read that work and those conversations from forty years ago, it's like yeah, I'm actually I feel like I'm part of the conversation because it's the conversations that we're having right now, um, mm-hmm. and and I think that that's that's yeah. like, like that's some real solidarity, um, I think. Yeah. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thanks this so much. Work that you're doing. Mm-hmm.